morning. We're thankful that you're here as we approach this, uh, uh, our celebration of Christmas with our families, with our friends, and our homes. Uh, it is a joy to prepare our hearts for that time, uh, both in this service and then, of course, the Christmas Eve service. So if you're able to come out to that, that'd be great. Would you pray with me as we uh, begin our time in God's Word? Father, we are thankful that we have your word to look to. We're thankful that we don't have to guess about who you are or what you expect of us, but you've laid it out in this special revelation that is your word, the Bible, Scripture. As we turn to it, we pray that you would turn our hearts to you. We pray that this would be a time of um, really reckoning with who you are and that we would leave here with our hearts in the right place to worship you accordingly. Whatever our expectations were coming in here out of this service, whatever we thought we'd get out of church, we pray we'd get out of it what you want us to get out of it. We don't want to be consumers of easy believism or cheap grace or shallow, thin versions of you, but deepen our understanding of who you are so we can leave here having gotten out of this time much more than we maybe even expected coming in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we think about uh, Christmas, we think about the nativity scene, uh, most of us see it as a joyful, serene image. Uh, many of you have your nativity set out, and it's, it's cute, and the baby's cute, and the carvings are nice. It's, it's nice. Uh, most of those scenes don't strike fear into our hearts. Uh, but when you read the, the account of the nativity, especially with the shepherds, you realize uh, they weren't feeling very cute. Uh, they were scared. If you were there, you might have needed a brown bag to breathe into. Uh, it was, uh, it was quite a scene, and we sing it, don't we? Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. I mean, it is, it is a fearful, awesome uh, thing that is the birth of Jesus. And so we want to look into that complexity. We want to look into that weightiness of it in Luke chapter 2. Uh, some Bibles are being passed out. If you need one, lift your hand up. We'll bring one to you. Uh, we're going to be in a couple different passages today, but mainly in Luke chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? <clears throat> so Luke chapter 2, of course, Luke recounting this, the angels announcing it uh, to, uh, to Mary and then to also John's parents. But we're going to look at the announcement to the shepherds in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. We're going to read 8 through 21. Let's put all of that out in front of us, 8 through 21. And let's allow this passage to shape a little bit more, bring into more definition, higher definition, higher clarity, our view of this scene. We want to get out of our minds kind of the baubles and the tinsels and the trees and the wrappings and the presents and think about being out in a field. It's dark, it's nighttime. And then these angels come and announce the birth of the Savior. Verse 8, And in the same region, there were shepherds 
out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What we see here is a familiar passage with familiar themes, familiar words. Some of us uh, have portions of this memorized. They're all over greeting cards or Christmas cards, uh, readings and in in Christmas and Advent services. But I'm hoping we can see this with some fresh eyes to see the weightiness of what is happening here because you have these shepherds who are protecting their flock from what? From wolves, from bears, from thieves. These are not sort of uh, teenage boys inexperienced. These are kind of rougher, tougher guys. They're out at night and they're fine. And then they're suddenly afraid and they need to be calmed down. So what is happening here? And clearly, we're not dealing with just any child. And I know uh, those of you who are believers, you understand this and you know this, that Jesus is not just any child, but we know that from this text because the text describes Jesus as Christ the appointed Savior. So as we move through the Apostles' Creed, we're going to put this next section up on the screen for you to see. The Apostles' Creed, this early statement of the Christian faith, it has these pieces. Now, last week, we saw this piece. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then the very next move of the creed is to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Now, we can leave that up there for a minute because these terms, many of these terms we find here. You see in verse 21, the name will be Jesus. Now, they've heard the name Jesus before. It's, it's a version of the name Joshua which means God is Savior. He is Yeshua. And they understood that these, this name from the Old Testament was projecting forward. J Joshua wasn't a final Savior. He didn't finally save it. He didn't fix the world's problems. And so we needed a Savior to fix everything. We needed a Savior to end uh, this, this longing for this hope and this expectation for one who would come and deliver us for real. And so Jesus, this baby, is coming to be the Savior God. And then Christ, you see that in verse 11? For unto you 
is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Not Lucas O'Neill, Jesus Christ, right? That, that Christ is a title. It means that he is anointed. It is the Greek version of Messiah. He's anointed, which means he's appointed, right? That they would anoint kings to be kings. They would anoint priests to serve God as priests. They would anoint prophets. And Jesus would fulfill all three of those roles finally. To be the ultimate prophet and voice of God. To be the ultimate mediator between us and God. To fix that gap. To be the final king. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Jesus Christ is the Savior who's come, who's been anointed by God to do this role. And when the creed says his only son, it recognizes that this isn't just Mary's son, but that this is the very son of God. Not like angels are sons of God, but something different. So that this son of God is of the same substance, right, theologians would say, as God. And so he's not a mere human that God is just calling his son, like God is just adopting him as son. That gets to happen to us through Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has always been the son from the beginning. He was always the son. So theologians have described this origin called the eternal generation. He's always been. He never, he was not born into existence. He was born as a man, but he always existed. That means he was always in this sonship relationship with the Father. That's always been. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he was begotten but not made. And that's a lot to unpack. That is a lot to go into. But as we put together with Scripture, we realize this isn't just uh, another man born in the line of kings. But this is it. This is the Son of God himself that shares deity with God himself but he is not the father he's different from the father and so in history of the church people try to clarify the trinity because it's kind of mind-blowing and hard to sometimes the way they try to explain it gets them into trouble and then they get kicked out of the church uh, or punched in the face by the original saint nick if you know that story uh yeah the, the real santa claus is his hardcore uh i i like i like him um I'd never slap somebody for heresy, but uh, he, he did uh, and over these kinds of issues. Now, some would say uh, what, it, what we have here is the Father, because you got one God, so the Father kind of changes roles and becomes the Son, and then the Son changes roles and becomes the Spirit. It's almost like Clark Kent changing in the, in the booth, right? He's Clark Kent, but then when he changes his clothes, then he's Superman. And they're different. They're not exactly the same, but they're really one person, two different roles. And uh, that's heresy because what we see in Scripture is you have two distinct persons. So that if the son is in a, in a position of submission to the father, it's not true submission if the person he's submitting to is himself. And so this sonship relationship, the submission to the father is an important piece, and you lose that if you just go, well, Father, Son, Spirit, it's all the same person. No, it's not. They're the same God. They're not the same person. Uh, this is something that you uh, will need to continue to dive into and, and, and tease out, but not something that you can ever create a perfect analogy for. It's not water, ice, and vapor because liquid has to be one of those forms at the same time. You're back to modalism again. Back to Clark Kent changing in the booth. He's not a three-layered cake. He's not a three-part clover. 
right? Because one part is not the whole, but Jesus is holy God. And so that you can't find an analogy for it. That doesn't mean it's illogical. It just means that it's not easy to find an analogy for. So you see these things coming into play where Jesus is different from the Father. He's the Son. He's, he's not the same person as the Father. But for all of that distinction, for all of the fact that the Father grants authority to the Son, again, the, 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 it doesn't make sense if they're the same person, for one to be in the position of having granted authority and one being the position of being the grantor of authority. Right? So there's, there's difference there. But for all of that distinction, there is sameness. And it's that sameness that I want to uh, focus on today. Because if we don't think about sameness, Christ's identification with the Father, we can easily fall into uh, the thinking, knowingly or unknowingly, that when you read the Old Testament God, the, the God the Father, you have a harsh deity that wants to wipe people out, kill people, that wants sacrifice, he's into blood and messy things, and then Jesus comes and he's like, no, I'm just going to make you fishers of men, and he's cooking fish, and they're just fishing, you know, and he's just like a cool guy to hang out with. He's healing people, and it's like good cop, bad cop. You know, it's like Old Testament, ooh, scary. Jesus, oh, thank you for covering us from that nasty father. Don't worry. I talked to him today. You'll be all right. It's like growing up in an abusive household where the eldest sibling is constantly protecting the little kids from the wrath of a crazy dad. That is not the picture here. Because Jesus is identified with God Almighty, even though he is not the father. And so while we want to protect the distinction between the persons, not the same person, we don't want to so separate them that they're radically different from each other in terms of attributes or character because they're not. And I want you to see that just even in this passage. Why are they in fear? I think one of the reasons is because Jesus Christ is not just the appointed one, the anointed one who's come to be the Savior, who is the Son of God, but comma, our Lord, our Lord, there's, there's where the other shoe drops, the weightiness of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's approachable. Yes, he's full of compassion and he's full of love, but he is Lord. And he's not just Lord when he comes back, right, with all the angels blowing trumpets and wiping out wickedness. He's Lord in the manger, and that's why when we come upon this scene, the angel doesn't come as a little chubby toddler with diapers on and a little harp and plays a soft song. And they're like, hey, little cute little baby Yoda looking angel thing. Like, you know, they're shaking. And they're fearful and have to be calmed down. I don't know what it normally takes to take a group of full-grown men who are used to camping out in the wilderness and fighting off wolves and make them shake in their sandals. But that's what's happening here. You might go, well, they're not fearful because of Jesus. They're fearful because of an angel. But that's not accurate. They're not fearful because of the angel. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. See, we see throughout the Bible that an angel can just come dressed like a, a regular dude. And you don't even know it's an angel until you're done having dinner with the, the person. And that's not what's happening here. It's not the fact that it's an angel. It's, 
It's what surrounded the angel, which is the glory, not of the angel, but the glory of the Lord. You remember at the end of Exodus, Moses is going to go into the tent of meeting, and he can't go into the tent of meeting because this glory cloud, in a sense, is, is over this place, and he can't enter it. And so it's this weight, it's this power, it's this glory that surrounds the angel. And I don't know what it looked like, what it sounded like, if there was flashes of lightning and thunder like earlier in Exodus, or, or what was happening there. But the point is not what it looked like, the point is what it felt like. It was weighty and powerful. And they were afraid. I don't think the angel showed up uh, looking demonic. It's not a horror kind of fear, but the opposite. When you are surrounded by holiness, you, are, you respond like Isaiah, who sees the glory of the Lord, and he sees how unholy he is. He's the scary one. He's the demonic-looking one in light of this glory and this holiness that is the Lord. We shouldn't be in that presence. And I think the shepherds have an immediate sense, woe is me, I am unraveled to be surrounded by this glory of the Lord. And this glory of the Lord is there because the angel is there to announce the birth of this baby, Jesus. That this baby, Jesus, has all that weight and all that glory. And we know that because when it says in verse 9 that the glory of the Lord shone, Luke also established that Jesus himself is the Lord. When you read through the Old Testament, the word Lord is not thrown around lightly. The word Lord is used of God the Father, God Almighty, creator of everything, owner of everything, the demander of complete worship is the Lord. Whether it's Adonai or Yahweh, the Lord is, is God himself. And you read that through the Old Testament, and even when you start reading through Luke, 18 times before you get to this passage, you have the word Lord showing up. And it references the Father over and over, because Luke knows that the Lord is the, the creator of all things, that the Lord refers to God himself. Look at verse 32, the same chapter. All right, chapter 1, actually. Chapter 1, verse 32. There's so many I can point out, I just want to kind of save time a little bit. Have you seen verse 32? Uh, the birth of Jesus is, is being announced here, again, uh, from an angel to uh, Mary. And he tells her, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. See, the Lord God is going to give Jesus the throne. So who's the Lord God? Well, the Father, obviously, because the Father is giving something to the Son, which is the throne of David. And we see that clearly in verse 32. So Luke keeps using Lord, 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 18 times up until our passage. But one of those times is clearly Jesus. Look at verse 43, same chapter, just a few verses down from where we just were. Verse 43, Mary is in conversation with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to John. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What? Now, if you're a careful reader of the Old Testament and you're a careful reader of Luke, you get through almost all of chapter 1 and you get to that use of Lord and you're like, wait a minute. The Lord is the baby? Or the Lord is the one that's granting the baby the throne? 
Yes. Jesus is Lord. I thought the Father was Lord. Yes. Right? And so we get this sense that the Lord is reserved for God, Creator, Almighty, Sovereign, things that we associate with the Father role. And Luke is telling us all of that stuff is Jesus as well. Jesus shares those attributes. And we see that clearly in verse 43, and I want you to see in chapter 2, in this text that we're in this morning, look at verse 9. It's the angel of the Lord. It's an angel of the Lord. Usually in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. But we understand that this, the Lord represents Yahweh himself. And then when you read verse 10, it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, comma, who is Christ the Lord. Right? And so there's the identification. You have the separation, the distinction. Here's the Lord who's going to give the throne to the Lord. And there's this identification so that it is very appropriate for the Father to come to Israel in, in Exodus and descend on the tent of meeting with flashes of thunder and lightning and the earth is quaking and the people are like, oh, Moses, you talk to him and then just come and get, tell us, give us the cliff notes because we'll die if we approach that God. And then Luke is saying, that God is a baby. Not the Father, but the Lord, God himself. So the Father and the Son are not the same person, but they share the same substance. They share the same weight, that same glory. And it's that glory of Jesus that surrounded the angels and had these shepherds quaking, shaking, fearful. Because Jesus, uh, it, Jesus, the baby, the incarnation of the Lord is an occasion for fear. Not fear of a bad guy, but fear of our own unworthiness. Fear of the fact that we are separated and we shouldn't have this baby. We shouldn't have this child. This, this king is, I cannot be in this king's presence. And so if you were there live, you wouldn't go up to the manger and go uchi kuchi ku to Jesus' cheek. You would have this sense that this is not just a baby. But that this is weighty and awesome because this child is the Lord. This child is the Lord. I have several references here. I'm not going to have you walk through all of them with me. But I'm going to take you to two places just to establish this outside of Luke chapter 2. I think this is helpful. This is important for us. I want you to go to Joel chapter 2, and we don't have this on the screen. I want you to turn there, use the table of contents. If it's clumsy to flip around in your device or in your paper Bible, then just listen carefully. But Joel chapter 2 has this sort of scary, uh, ominous uh, prophecy. In Joel chapter 2, and it's, it's lengthy, but we'll drop down to about verse... Uh, 28, now we'll go to 30, let's go to look, Joel chapter 2 verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, boy that sounds like God the Father in it, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord, all capitals there, that's Yahweh, the great I am. 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. How will you escape this darkness? How will you escape this gloom? How will you escape this uh, awesome judgment that's going to come down on those who are wicked? Oops, I'm wicked. Well, you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Now I want you to fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching his first sermon. And he quotes Joel. Right? He uses this prophecy from Joel chapter 2. And you'll see, right, it'll drop down verse 21. Well, you see in verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's quoting Joel 2. Same passage, same reference, but Peter sees Jesus as fulfilling this. When you look at verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So to Peter, who is the Lord that you're supposed to respond to? Jesus. And then you see that again. Verse 38, what should your response be? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in that name that you're supposed to call on, in that name that Joel said you're supposed to call upon, the name of Yahweh. And he says, you should, be, you should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see Peter reading Joel and saying, Joel is talking about God, this Yahweh God who's Lord. He's almighty, he's over all things, and he's the only one that can save because he's the one that's judging. And then in Acts 2, he uses Joel to preach to the audience. They're familiar with Joel, and he's like, remember Joel? You're supposed to call on the name of the Lord? Well, that is Jesus. The blood, the smoke, the moon turning to darkness, all of that is Jesus. And the only way out from underneath that wrath is Jesus. So it's not good cop, bad cop, grumpy father, cuddly Jesus. Jesus is all of those things together. So he's weighty. And our response to Jesus should take into account this weightiness. Those of you who are note takers, we won't go to these, but the same thing that we saw from Joel 2 to Acts 2, you'll see the same thing from Isaiah 45 to Philippians 2. You'll see the same thing from Psalm 102 to Hebrews 1. I mean, you see the New Testament authors taking Old Testament texts that refer to God and saying, Jesus is that Lord. And so what should our response be to Jesus? What should we be like at Christmas? What should our response be to a nativity scene? I think fear is an appropriate response. If we understand what he's come to do, We understand that he had to come on mission because of our gap before God. We need someone to go into that tent for us because if we approach that tent, we'll die. Jesus is the tent approacher for us. And so it begins that way, but then it evolves. It doesn't stay that way. The angel doesn't go, good, stay on your face and quake. You should never approach Christ. Well, the angel says, don't fear. This is actually a rescue mission. 
He's actually here to be the Savior. He's actually here to be your King. And so it's appropriate for you to fall on your knees and fall on your face, but you don't stay there. You get up and then you follow. And so they approach, they go, hey, they don't say, let's, let's get out of here. Let's run in the opposite direction like, like Jonah. They say, no, let's go to this place. And so they go over to Bethlehem in verse 15 to see this thing that's happened that the Lord has made known to us. They make haste to do it in verse 16. And I think an appropriate response, when you understand the fear, if you're in here this morning, you're like, fear? I understand why really bad people should be fearful, but I'm okay. Uh, you still haven't arrived yet. But if your response is like Isaiah's response and go, woe is me, and then God says, no, 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 I'm taking care of that sin, and he atones, and what's the next thing he does with Isaiah? It puts him on mission, go, and Isaiah go, and it's a terrible mission. You're going to preach this sermon and no one's going to listen, so. You, you know, you're going to be a preacher. It's like if somebody, if God told somebody today, you're going to plant a church and no one's going to show up. So go ahead. Um, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for the mission. But Isaiah immediately responds. It starts with fear. Woe is me. God teaches him about atonement and then sends him and he goes right away. These angels, they're fearful. They're told Jesus has come to save. He's come to be the Messiah, the appointed one. He's come to be the one that goes to that tent for us. Then the response is haste, in verse 16, to go find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they talked about that announcement. See, it's easy to forget about that scary announcement and just move on to the baby scene, but it never gets left behind. When they saw Mary and Joseph, they saw the baby lying in the manger, they start talking about that scary announcement concerning the child in verse 17. And then all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I don't think it means wonder there, like, huh, I wonder what that means. It's wonder, amazement, awe. Like when you say the seven wonders of the world, not seven things that make you go, what, what is that? But seven things that make you contemplate and think about the awesomeness of this thing. And so they started with one, they started with fear, they moved to haste, and then they ended up in wonder when they shared that news. Those who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then uh, verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's going over this and, and thinking about these things. And so you see this movement from fear to hasty response to wonder and amazement. And it's not just wonder and amazement at the theology of it. Now that is interesting. How do you have the Lord but the Lord? How do you have the Lord, the Father, and Lord, the Son? And how do we, let's see if we could draw this on a piece of slate. Uh, uh, shepherd number two, do you have a piece of chalk? And let's draw this out. That's not the kind of wonder, but wonder that leads to worship. And you see that in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So they move from fear, fearful response to a hasty response to what the angel told them, to sharing that news, to being filled with wonder. The people that they share the news with are filled with wonder, verse 18. And then it ends in verse 20 with this response of glorifying God, this response of praising God for all they had heard 
and seeing. You remember in Jonah when the sailors are all about to die and Jonah's like, well, if you just throw me overboard, I'll take the wrath that's upon this ship right now. You remember that scene? Maybe you don't remember that scene and you just think of Jonah and a whale and that's all you remember. But it starts off with Jonah escaping from God. God is raining his wrath down. The floods of judgment are literally going to swallow the ship up. The sailors are scared out of their minds and Jonah says, if you throw me over, essentially I'll take that wrath off of you. I'll take it on me. And so they throw him overboard and then the judgment stops. And the sailors praise God. The response is praise and glory. And so Jesus has come. Yes, there's this wrath, and yes, there's this holiness that we don't deserve, but Jesus comes to take the punishment for us, right? He's going to grow from that baby and eventually live the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he takes the punishment, he takes the cross, and then he defeats death and, ri- death and rises again. They know this is coming. They know that he's Savior, that he's Christ. They read their Old Testament. You remember over and over, and Jesus approaches disciples, and they're like, I don't understand. Why did Jesus die, or why are you dying? And he's constantly like, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Have you read the Bible? He tells the Pharisees, you read the Bible, but you haven't read the Bible. <laughs> the Old Testament showed that this was going to happen. And that's what the whole story of Jonah was ultimately about. And so those sailors move from fear to worship. It's a recognition of why Jesus had to come, and that's a weighty thing. That is a weighty thing. Jesus didn't come to die for somebody else who's worse than you or you think is worse than you. It's for me. It's for you. And we need the Savior to come. And without the Savior, we have no hope. Without the Savior, we have no peace. So if you feel uh, guilt, this weighty burden of separateness from God rushing into your heart, that's a good thing. But if you respond and call upon the name of Jesus in repentance and faith, then you should also take encouragement from what the angel shared about this being your Savior. He's here to rescue you. You don't have to approach the tent in fear because he goes before us as the perfect mediator. And so it moves from worship to wonder to giving praise and worship. And if some of you feel like it's a little dry, we come in here, we sing songs, you're kind of like, man, I just can't get into it. Maybe you have to think again about who is this Christ that we worship. Kind of pull away from the Hallmark version of it and get back into the Luke 2 version of it because it's weighty. The Father and Son, they are in unison. And so we worship Jesus, who came to be born in this baby, uh, in this form. But as the Father is love, the Son is love. As the Father has wrath, the, the Son has wrath. As the Father is creator of all things, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. As the Father has sovereignty, Jesus has sovereignty. The Father is the Father of judgment, Jesus has judgment. So you read Revelation, and Jesus isn't very cuddly in the book of Revelation. He's riding a white horse, and he's got a sword, and he's coming to cut evil down. And so the Father and the Son are not opposites of each other. Jesus didn't come to clean up the Father's mess, but it's all one plan that coheres together. So you've got to take Jesus, the whole package, and not Jesus, the one that produces... uh, certain nice things in your life. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, he is the exact representation of the Father. 
You remember when Philip asked Jesus in chapter 14 of, of the Gospel of John, could you just show us the Father? And he's like, I, I, don't, I can't prove this, but if Jesus ever just kind of hit someone, one of his disciples in the back of the head, he at least did it verbally. He's like, Philip, are you serious? After all this time I've been with you, you still don't get it? If you see me, you see the Father. And so there's this oneness there. So when we approach Jesus, it's that weight, same weight of the Father. 1 Timothy 6, we saw that in verse 15 when we were moving through 1 Timothy. And this is quoted two more times in the book of Revelation in chapter 17 and 19, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ultimate king. He is the Lord. He sits on the throne. And we get to enjoy that reign if we approach Jesus, the weighty Jesus, if we approach Jesus, the cartoon Jesus, the glistening tooth with the thumbs up on the t-shirt Jesus, if that's your Jesus, you're probably still on the outside. But if you approach a Jesus that is a weighty Jesus, an awesome Jesus, a Jesus that you fall on your face in front of, a Jesus that you have no business praying to, a Jesus that you have no business being in relationship with because he's holy and I am not, then that's the right Jesus to call upon. The Jesus to come to save you from that gap. So we hold those things in tension. There's a gap, but Jesus solves it. Jesus is scary, but he's also my savior that frees me from having to live under the weight of that fear. He gets me up, and he moves me with haste into worship. Now, sometimes sermons end with application that is very doable. Go home and pray more. Go home and read the Bible more. Love your neighbor by doing things for them. Put other people first. Here's some examples. I want you to leave here with wonder with amazement. I want you to ponder some of these things about Jesus in your heart. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. You'll have to figure that out. But I think the takeaway from these nativity scenes is to understand the weightiness and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ so that before we dive into ripping open presents and sort of the, the me-centered uh, focus that it can sometimes be on Christmas morning, that we just take a moment and maybe sit around with our families and just say, can I just read some scripture first before we do this? Can we read about the ultimate gift and present that is Jesus Christ? And pray that those words that you read fall fresh on the hearts of those gathered around you that morning. Because we want a full picture of this Jesus that we celebrate. This awesome, weighty King and Lord who rescues us to follow him as Lord and not a cheap religious accoutrement to your life. Your king, the one who sits on the throne of your own life and heart. Let's follow him. Let's follow him in worship and wonder and amazement. Let's dig deeper. Let's ponder these things and allow it to change how we respond to him in glorifying him and worshiping him. And we'll do that even now as we close in a song. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come and let's pray that we can do that with our hearts fully engaged. Father, as we close in this song, and as we go about our, the rest of what remains of our weekend, the rest of our Christmas break, whatever we have in front of us, Lord, as we approach Christmas morning, uh, God, we pray that you would allow our hearts to be in awe of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can proclaim with the creed that Jesus is our Lord and that we would respond to the lordship of Christ, that you wouldn't be uh, just sort of a 
attachment to our lives that are otherwise about other things, but you would be it. Our lives would revolve around you and center on you. God, if that means giving up certain sins or habits, if that means adopting spiritual practices that help us focus on you more, if that means changing some of our Christmas traditions, whatever it means, God, we pray that you would take over, that you would floor us with the weight of your glory and allow us to respond by praising and glorifying you, not just at church on Sundays, but throughout our lives. That people can see we, something has happened. We've seen something. And that we would report, like the shepherds, what we've seen and what we've heard so that others can ponder it as well. God, do this work in our lives because we left to ourselves, we won't. We pray that you would do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You stand and we'll close in the song.